This morning we're going to continue in Matthew chapter 27, and I would like to begin this morning reading in verse 15. Now at the feast, the governor, that is Pilate, was accustomed to release for the people any one prisoner whom they wanted. At that time they were holding a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the people gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that because of envy they had handed him over. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife, that is Pilate's wife, sent him a message saying, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. But the governor said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, crucify him. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more, saying, Crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. And all the people said, His blood shall be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas for them, but after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they knelt down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! They spat on him and took the reed and began to beat him on the head. After they had mocked him, they took the scarlet robe off him and put his own garments back on him and led him away to crucify him. As they were coming out, they found a man of Cyrene named Simon, whom they pressed into service to bear his cross. Let's pause and pray. Father, we pray, have mercy. As we come upon the most significant scene in all of Holy Scripture, as we approach that scene of the cross, please, we ask, by your gracious Spirit, do not let these moments pass without us being impressed 
with the glory and the majesty and the grace of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. On my bookshelf is a book that I was required to read in seminary, for which I am very thankful. It's a, it's a book on the subject of sin, and it's a book that I've referenced many, many times over the years. Very helpful. It's entitled, Sin, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. This whole scene is not the way it's supposed to be. This is not how things should be going. If you're reading carefully in light of Scripture and even in light of the historical context, which we spent a little bit of time on last week, everything is going the opposite of the way it should be. Everything in this scene with Pilate and the priests and leaders of Israel and the people themselves. Everything's upside down. Everything's backwards. Everything's wrong. Everything's the opposite of what it should be. He is the king of the Jews. Pilate uses that phrase with derision, scorn, but that is in fact who Jesus is. His people look with me, want a criminal named Barabbas rather than their king. Pilate was accustomed accustomed on this day, the feast, this is the greatest feast in Israel's calendar year, and it was tradition. Pilate wasn't the first one to be, to have to go along with this tradition. It was tradition that the Roman governor would release to the Jewish people, one of their own, as an act of benevolence, of kindness, of recognition of the Roman Empire, of their citizens. Pilate is maneuvering. He's trying to, he's trying to set Jesus free. That's the context here. Is he's trying to set up a situation where where Jesus will be set free. Pilate is not terribly concerned for Jesus. He certainly doesn't worship Jesus. He certainly doesn't have any faith in Jesus. Pilate's a scoundrel. He's a thug. He's, he is like a mob boss, a mafia head. He's a brutal, violent man. Does not have many moral qualms about doing whatever is most pragmatic. And he does not like the reality that in this situation, the Jewish leadership has put him in a bit of a bind. They've brought to him some Jewish man from up in Galilee, some country bumpkin, and they're accusing of being an insurrectionist, leading a riot or a revolt against the Roman Empire. It becomes clear to Pilate after he interviews Jesus that Jesus is no threat to the Roman Empire. He becomes clear to Pilate, as the text says, that it was because of envy that they were handing him over. And Pilate deeply resents that the Jewish leadership is maneuvering 
and Pilate in a way that they're going to use Pilate for their bloodthirsty aim, which is to murder Jesus. They want Pilate to do their dirty work. And the way that they are forcing Pilate to do this is in light of the background where Pilate has already been in trouble with the headquarters back in Rome, Pilate has already received, as it were, a political slap on the wrist from Caesar because Pilate had mishandled another explosive situation in Judea. The Jewish leadership, knowing this, puts Pilate in an impossible position. If Pilate lets this guy go, they are, in so many words, telling Pilate, if you let him go, you're letting go someone who is a threat to Caesar and who taught that you shouldn't uh, give taxes, pay taxes to Caesar. Of course, that wasn't true. But they were politically maneuvering Pilate. Pilate resents this, and so he plays the game, and he exposes the ugliness of the Jewish religious leadership's character. He offers to, he knows the tradition that one prisoner is released, and so of all the people that Pilate chooses, he offers up Barabbas, apparently the worst of the worst of the worst a notorious prisoner, we're told. Notorious. A violent, godless thug. And Pilate, by putting out the question, do you want me to release Barabbas or Jesus, is bringing to light that the Jewish religious leadership will do anything. They will go to the lowest low in order to see Jesus crucified. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. First of all, the king's people want a criminal rather than the king. Jesus's people want a criminal rather than their king. They'd rather have Barabbas than Jesus. And Jesus is their true king. Pilate has asked Jesus, and Jesus has as much owned it. And to the chief priests he had declared, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus in these moments, in this night, and in this morning, has confessed himself to be the Messiah, the embodiment, the fulfillment of all the prophetic promises. He is the king of Israel, and his people want a notorious prisoner rather than their king, the Messiah, the Christ. It's all wrong. Another way in which things are not the way they are supposed to be, We've already referenced this, but think about it. In this scene, not only do Jesus' people, the Jews, remember the angel announced to Jesus' parents that Jesus, to, to, 
to his father, to Joseph, that Jesus was to be called Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. Make no mistake, Jesus is the king of Israel. He is the king of the Jews. He's the king of the whole world. But here we have his own people denying him. And instead, a foreign pagan ruler named Pilate defending the king from his own people. Wicked Pilate, violent violent as he is, without any real moral character, sees how innocent Jesus is. He declares his innocence in verse 23. He says to the crowd and to the religious leaders, why, what evil has he done? It's out of a mouth of a godless pagan oppressor that a line of defense is coming on behalf of the king to the king's own people. The wife of this godless pagan oppressor, this governor named Pilate, declares the king to be a righteous man. The king's own people should be declaring that he's a righteous man. The thousands upon thousands that witnessed his preaching and his miracles should be there declaring this man is a, not only innocent, he is righteous, he is the son of God. And instead you have the wife of Pilate sending him a message telling him to stay away Stay away from that man. Because she had had a dream. And in that dream, it had been revealed to her that he was righteous. Verse 19, have nothing to do with that righteous man. Pilate knows he's innocent. His wife now reveals to him that she's had a dream and she knows that Jesus is righteous. Not only innocent, but that he actually is a man who obeys the law of God. And you have Pilate, this pagan ruler, seeking a way to release the king. He's, it's so bad. It's, it's so obvious that Jesus is innocent. And with his wife's message, Pilate is especially concerned that Pilate goes through a series of attempts to to satisfy the bloodthirst of the Jewish leadership and the crowd. He has Jesus mistreated, beaten. He has the ploy, the effort to release Barabbas instead of Jesus. None of them work. This is so backwards. I mean, you have Pilate acting as Jesus' essentially legal defense instead of the nation, the king's people themselves. His people want a criminal rather than a king. A pagan ruler is defending the king. The third way in which this is so backwards In verse 25, the king's people, and by the king, I'm referring to Jesus. He's the king. The whole gospel of Matthew is 
oriented to present to us the truth that Jesus is the Messiah, the King. Thirdly, the king's people welcome the guilt of his blood and in so doing heap condemnation on themselves. They welcome the guilt of his blood. They say in verse 23, I'm sorry, verse 25, his blood shall be on us and on our children. That's very serious. And that's not a profession of faith in Jesus Christ and his blood making atonement for their sins. No, no, no. The background of that is taken from Joshua chapter 2, verse 19. You don't need to turn there. You can if you want, but you should listen to this. It's a situation when the spies were at Jericho. Rahab, the prostitute, had protected them. She was asking for protection and salvation for herself and for her household. And the spies, as ambassadors of God, extended to her a way by which she could be spared the judgment that was coming upon the city of Jericho. They said in verse 19 of Joshua chapter 2, It will be that anyone who goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on, your, on his own head, and we shall be free. But anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head if a hand is laid on him. In other words, that phrase, that someone's blood be on our heads, means I am responsible, I am guilty for that person's murder, for that person's life, for that person's blood being shed. I am responsible before Almighty Holy God for the blood of that person. And here you have the crowd, the king's own people, Calling out Jesus, to, concerning Jesus, his blood shall be on us. And not only on that generation, but on our children. They were willing to invoke the wrath of God upon themselves and upon their children. On behalf of the blood of Christ, they hated him so. So backwards. So not the way it's supposed to be. Later, in Acts chapter 5, verse 28, the apostles, when they're dragged before the same leaders in Jerusalem, the same Jewish leaders, at that point, the Jewish leaders will say to the apostles, you have been filling Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. You're the ones who cried out at the courtroom scene in front of Pilate, that Jesus' blood would be upon you. And a little later, they're accusing the apostles as being the ones who are putting the blame for Jesus' death on them. So ugly. It's so corrupt. It is so overtly immoral. The king's people... Rather than defending him, rather than defending him, they call for his blood, and then they call for the blood of the king and the guilt of his murder in the sight of God to be on them and their children. 
They're children. A fourth scene. We move from the courtroom with Pilate and the cries that Jesus would be crucified. Pilate vainly, in vain, tries to wash his hands. It's, he's only looking out for himself. He's, he's trying to claim innocence. Verse 24, he's not innocent. He's, if he's a true governor, if he's a representative of Roman law, he should defend the innocent. He knows Jesus is innocent. This is purely political and In vain, he tries to claim that this isn't my fault, this is your fault. Pilate was guilty. Not with the same guilt of the Jewish leadership and of the people, but Pilate is guilty. And then he hands over the king to be scourged and to be crucified. I know we've moved quickly. I want to just pause. Um, It's dizzying, isn't it? The scene. Disorienting. It's so full of confusion. It's so backwards. So violent. So immoral. So loud. The crowds crying out, crucify him. It wasn't at this point anymore just the chief priests. The the, the crowds had been persuaded. They turned on Jesus. His own people turned on him. We're sickened by it. Even as we're going along and reading it or studying it, it, it's hard to know where to look. It's, It's grotesque. It's a scene of carnage. Morally, Biblically, this, 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 is, this is the king. On every front, it's just alarming. And if you feel that way, that's good. Because that's the scene. And it doesn't necessarily fit into nice, neat categories of organization. <laughs> We sang this morning, go to dark Gethsemane. The Holy Spirit records this scene in each of the Gospels to varying degrees. We are meant to see the chaos and the confusion and the corruption and the call of the crowd for the blood of Christ and to be horrified. It is alarming. And it is especially moving and alarming and cause for grief when we see the scene change to verse 27. When the soldiers of Pilate, the governor, take Jesus to the praetorium. The praetorium was the Roman outpost right alongside adjacent to the temple on the outer wall, not in the temple. But Rome was the power. There was a certain measure of freedom of worship granted to the Jews and in Jerusalem. 
but Rome's presence was felt very keenly. And the Praetorium is right there. This is the guardhouse, if you will. This is where the soldiers are housed. Pilate, his palace was likely right near or joining the Praetorium. Remember, the Romans are not loved by the citizenry. And there's a long history of Roman soldiers getting killed and murdered, ambushed by Jewish fanatics who wanted Rome out. There is no love between Roman soldiers and Jerusalem's citizenry. There is nothing but hatred, hatred of the soldiers. Soldiers hate the people. To be a Roman soldier and to go to that region of the world is to risk your life. It's a perennial hotbed of revulsion and revolt against the Roman Empire. To be a soldier on duty in that region of the world is to be hated by most of the people around you. Remember, the Jews would keep away from them because they were Gentiles, wouldn't even greet them, wouldn't even acknowledge they existed. There is loathing and hatred between the Jews and the Roman soldiery. Pilate hands over Jesus, the king of the Jews, to these Roman soldiers, these Gentile Roman soldiers. And boy, are they going to have some fun. Everyone's turning on Jesus. We're told in verse 27 that he was surrounded in the praetorium, the Roman quarters, guardhouse, in the courtyard by a whole Roman cohort cohorts could be of something like 600 soldiers. This is whatever the exact number. This is not a few men. This is our Lord Jesus Christ standing already beaten, already bruised, already bloodied, without sleep, with spit on his face and on his hair, dragged by these Roman soldiers who hate the Jews because of the Jews' revolt against Rome the Jews' religious superiority. There is, again, this, that animosity is so deep. And now the king of the Jews is in their hands, and boy, are they going to have fun with him. They stand him by himself, no one else there, in the middle of the entire soldiers, the entire cohort around him. And they are going to mock him, scorn him, treat him with a kind of contempt that no man has ever experienced. Not in light of who Jesus really is. He's surrounded by the cohort of Roman soldiers rather than by the armies of Israel. Think of how backwards that is. The king, if he's the king of Israel, he is the Messiah. He should be surrounded by 
a contingent of Jewish men who want to defend their king. And instead, here is the king all alone, handed over by his own people to the oppressing, occupying army. He's stripped and clothed in shame by these soldiers instead of being clothed in majesty as the Psalms speak of the Messiah. He is clothed like God in majesty. And they strip Jesus and put a scarlet robe on him and that scarlet robe was derision, scorn, mockery. They crown him with a crown of thorns. Painful, yes, but it's it's not so much the physical pain that this whole experience that really is the most prominent reality. The reality is the mockery that, that this, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the Messiah who should, the King and our High Priest who should have on his head a crown of fine gold. As the psalmist indicates, is crowned with a crown of thorns instead. They give him a reed as a scepter instead of a rod of iron, like the Messiah was told he would have in Psalm 2, rule them with a rod of iron. And here Jesus, the King of Israel, has a a reed instead of a rod of iron. He receives blows from the Roman soldiers with that reed upon his head instead of blessings being called down upon his head by his people. And finally, after this brutal treatment, and having been scourged in which a man's body would be shredded with a whip with various pieces of sharp implements in in the whip to tear off his flesh, Jesus finally, verse 31, was led away to be crucified. The king of Israel being led away instead of welcomed in. He'd been welcomed in less than a week ago. Hosanna to the son of David. And that's the way it should have been. Psalm 24, beautiful psalm. There's this cadence back and forth, this this picture of those who are keepers of the gate and it's like there's a choir at the gates of Jerusalem and the king with his with his uh, with his court and with his officials is coming and approaching the city and Psalm 24 lift says lift verse 7 lift up your heads O gates be lifted up O ancient doors that the king of glory may come in there's this antiphonal back and forth between the the people at the gates and those approaching the gates with the king. He's not being welcomed in with glory. He's being led away to endure the most shameful death ever designed. Everything's wrong. Everything's backwards. Everything's the way it shouldn't be. And I haven't probably even touched the surface. There's so multiple layers of wrongness On every way, every front.
all of it is not the way it's supposed to be. And that's true. And yet, and yet, it was the will, the sovereign will and plan of God. There's no way that Jesus is treated in this way unless it is ultimately the sovereign will and plan of God. It's, yes, it's an expose, it's a revealing of the true condition of Pilate's heart and of the heart of the chief priests and elders and the people of Israel. They are not being taken over. They are free agents, as it were, acting on behalf of their sinful nature. Like all sinners, they hate God and hate Christ. And this is the plan of God unfolding. The apostles later, Peter in Acts chapter 2, verse 22, on the day of Pentecost, verse 23, referring to Jesus, said, This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed, he's speaking to a Jewish audience in Jerusalem at that time, you nailed to a cross by the hands of lawless men and put him to death. They nailed him, they handed him over, they betrayed him, they nailed to a cross, and it was the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Which leads us then to consider that as our Lord is standing there, the king, this is his sovereign will and plan. He does not want the cup. He prays in Gethsemane, let this cup pass from me. That is, as we saw, a holy response by the holy incarnate Son of God to the prospect of our sin being imputed to him and receiving upon himself the judgment of God. And he wants this. Both are true. Because this is the will of his Father and he knows and he's known all along This was how it was going to go down, that this was the plan, and that this was the only way by which he would save his people, his very people who are treating him in this way. He would save his people from their sins. Jesus knows what he's doing the entire time. He is not welcoming the treatment. He's a man. He doesn't want to experience pain any more than any of us do. And yet our king, for the sake of the salvation of his people, knows this is the only way. And so we're witnessing him through this entire time in the context of the way things are not supposed to be 
moving forward deliberately, step by step, enduring the beatings, the scorn, the mocking, the shame, and all of it with a full knowledge of what he is doing and a holy, resolute, majestic will to go through with it. He's not a victim. He's not. He is laying down his life for us and for all who will believe. It's awesome to behold. In just a few moments here in closing, and I know that this is rather brief in a way, I, I confess I'm finding it difficult to preach right here in a sense that it, it's so horrifying, it's so holy. How do you describe this? How do we respond? I want to suggest that a response to what we're reading is found in the text itself. I'm not suggesting, I want to be clear, I'm not suggesting that the Holy Spirit intended this what I'm about to explain to you, in the text itself. In other words, I am using some words in the text for the purposes of application. But in along with the theme of everything being backwards, everything being the way it shouldn't be, the opposite of the way it should be, think with me for a moment. The crowd, along with the chief priests, And leaders of Israel cried out, let him be crucified, crucify him. Not once, not twice, numerous times and to the degree that Pilate saw there was a riot starting. And then they cried out, his blood be on us and on our children. And then when Jesus was surrounded by the Roman soldiers, they cried out, Hail, King of the Jews! I want you to consider with me for a moment that those three exclamations, as those who, by God's grace, have learned the rest of the story, that Christ was crucified for our sins, that he was buried, that he rose from the dead, that he now is ascended at the right hand of the Father. Now that we understand in the scriptures the gospel and that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things. From the vantage point we are at this morning, as those who have heard the gospel, the good news of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, with reverence, we can say, let him be crucified. 
Now, he is not to be ever crucified again. He was crucified once for all, never to be repeated. That's why in Protestant churches, when you see a cross, you never see a form of Jesus hanging on the cross. He was crucified. He died once for all. He is never to suffer or to die again. And yet as those who understand by God's grace the gospel that it is only by the death of the Son that we can be saved. We are damned if he doesn't die with fearful reverence, reading and looking on. The eye of faith and the confession of a man or a woman who is a sinner We recoil against the violence. We recoil against the injustice. But in faith, in alignment with the will and the plan of God, in holy reverence, we say in a way that the crowd did not say, with an intent that they did not say, mean, let him be crucified. Not with animosity but with a broken heart. Not with hatred, but with love. Not with scorn, but with worship. Because else he be crucified, we remain dead in our sins and our trespasses. There's no other way. And there is a perennial effort among professing the professing church and among those who profess Christ to shy away from sin and to put forward a false gospel that doesn't really need the cross, at least not as a tool of revealing the righteousness and the justice of God against sin and sinners. There is an ever- ongoing but in our day increasing inclination to have the Christianity, to have the gospel, to have songs about Jesus, but to diminish ever more and more the significance of the cross of Christ and his crucifixion as the only means by which we can be saved because it is there that the holy justice of a God full of wrath against sin and sinners, propitiates his wrath by pouring out his just wrath upon his son on the cross. We have to see our sin from the Bible's perspective. We have to know God as he is revealed in the scriptures, not as we want to make him up to be. And in light of who God is, in all the holiness of his character and his love and his kindness and his hatred of all that is not holy. As those who must be saved from the just condemnation of our sin and from hell itself, in humility, in recognition of the magnitude and the ugliness and significance of our sin, reading with eyes of faith, Let him be crucified.
Let him be crucified. He must be. Secondly, they cried out, His blood be on us and on our children. They meant it as a cry of derision, of scorn. They didn't care. They thought so little of him. They thought he was such an imposter. They hated him so much. They were willing to invite the judgment of God and bear his blood upon them as a guilt. We, through the eyes of faith, as those who now understand the gospel, who understand Hebrews chapter 9, that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness by way of response, with reverence, we can take that unholy cry, that bloodthirsty cry on behalf of people against their king, and we can turn it and we can make it into a humble prayer of faith. Not that the guilt of the death of Christ be upon us, but nonetheless, that God in his mercy would sprinkle us as sinners with his blood. Because unless his blood is shed, and unless his blood is applied, as it were, by God through faith to us, we are left guilty, dead in our trespasses and sins. If you don't have Jesus' blood on you, you're condemned. So with humility, not trying to be cute or trite, let him be crucified. Oh God, since this is your plan and your gospel, May his, the blood of Christ be upon me and cover my sin. And thirdly and finally, we can take the cry of the mocking cry of the Roman soldiers. Hail, King of the Jews! They were laughing, swearing, spitting, scorning, beating, cursing. We take that line and we own it and we mean it. We mean it. Hail, King of the Jews, King of kings and Lord of lords. I I, I will just note here That's Bible, King of the Jews. Don't take that title away from Jesus. You're messing with the word of God. Keep that one. King of the Jews, descendant of David, fulfillment of all the scriptures. Hail, King of the Jews. We mean it as a confession of faith, of adoration, of trust, of worship. You see, you you cannot hear the gospel account of the suffering and death of the Lord Jesus Christ read 
or preached and be indifferent. It sorts you out. You either are with the crowd and with the soldiers, or you are, by God's grace, among those who, broken over their sin and contrition in, in faith, worship Jesus. Understand that it was necessary that he be crucified. Do not shy away from the idea of our sin being so bad that it was necessary that the penalty of death, blood symbolizing death, be paid. And you worship Jesus. You you can't be indifferent on this. You can't be casual about Jesus. He can't be an idea or concept in our lives. He can't be a cultural pattern. He can't be just something merely that was passed down on our from our parents. By God's grace, each one of us must worship Jesus. Trust in his death. Thank God for his blood shed on our behalf. And worship the risen King of the Jews. Soon coming. Let's pray. God, we are undone by your word and by your spirit and by this account. None of us feel comfortable with it. We shouldn't. It's unnerving. It is uh, awful. And yet it is awesome. Because this was your plan all along. Overcoming the sin of man the rebellion of the evil one and setting forth your son to be the savior and king of the world. We love you, Lord Jesus. We are in awe of you. Thank you so much. That sounds so trite. How how do we thank you for what you did for us? We worship you. We bless you. We confess that you are the only Savior. There is salvation in no one else. And we freely and eagerly this morning hail you as King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen.